Well, we're continuing this morning the book of Revelation. If you've got your Bibles, turn to uh, Revelation chapter 10. If you don't have one, you can grab that uh, blue pew Bible. And uh, last book of the Bible, very end. Um, Revelation chapter 10 is one of those passages that, um, 10 and 11, honestly, probably don't get a whole lot of attention. Um, kind of a sleeper passage, if you will. There's, uh, what's interesting about it is it's crammed full of stuff, but we don't have categories to handle most of it. And, um, and so what we're going to try to do this morning is I'm going to try to hit the high point. There's a high point in each of the chapters, really. I'm going to try to hit those two high points. If you're interested in more of the uh, kind of the, the detail stuff that's in those passages, <clears throat> grab me, <clears throat> and we we'll, uh, we can visit, or uh, or I can give you something to read, and that'll maybe help satisfy some of that. So I'm I'm going to try to go with what. Uh, appears in the, the passage to be kind of the main thrust. Now, remember, so book of Revelation given to us uh, not to hide things or obscure things, but to open things up to reveal, if you will, God's plan for us. And so it, it's, uh, you know, a lot of us um, have the concept that the book of Revelation is big and scary, is full of, um, you know, really unknowable kinds of stuff, and, and if we did know it, it would just terrify us to death. Um, far from that, uh, really, John tells us early on that it's intended to be of our encouragement, to strengthen us and to show us more of who God is and what God has for us. And so the general theme that we've highlighted as we've begun working our way through the book, and as we're now nearly halfway through, is uh, that the Lamb, who has triumphed, is at the center of it all. And um, and he is holding it all together, indeed, um, responsible for uh, for it coming all together. So what I want to do is take um, uh, really all of chapter 10 and then just the first couple of verses of chapter 11, and we'll move from there. So beginning in chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, let's read together. John says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel that I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants the prophets. 
Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and I asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my my stomach, or tummy, um, turned sour. And then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Chapter 11, verse 1. I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court and do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city 42 months, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. And they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have the power to shut up the heavens, so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Since the reading of God's Word, let me pray for us. Father, um, this morning we come to Your Word. We, we come to the supper set for us. And Father, we need to see, we need to hear Christ. So give us hearts ready to hear about Him. Give us ears ready to hear the glorious news again. Father, let the gospel be turned loose upon us, that it may comfort us, that it may push us, that it may drive us out into the world, but that it may continue to be the best news that we've ever heard, all for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So, The trumpets have already sounded. We're in the second series. We've already had uh, the seven seals. Um, Now we're in the seven trumpets. And, um, and we're at the point in the, the uh, narrative where there is another dramatic pause. So we saw this way back when we were looking at the seven seals. Once we got to the sixth seal, there was a pause, kind of an interlude there, um, and there was a period in which some things were described for us. And those things that were described essentially were the fact that God is, um, he is sovereign over everything that is happening, the judgments that he is releasing upon the world, but he has secured his own. And he loves them. And so uh, that was what we saw in that first section. And it would be really surprising if something different happened in this section, but, it, but there's nothing different. Because remember, one of the things we talked about was that these series of, of sevens are, are not a progressive campaign, but really the same thing happening yet from a different angle, a different camera angle, as Dr. Johnson described it. And so that's essentially what seems to be taking place here. We've gotten through the six trumpets, and in those six we saw, you know, really just uh, terrible things happening. We looked at that last week. We saw how disconcerting it really can be until you recognize and you realize that God is the sovereign over those judgments. And as all of those things are happening, remember one of the things we noticed last week 
in the trumpets was that they were measured. God's judgments were measured. So far from being just, you know, uh, a heavenly father who's kind of just crazed and, you know, things are happening, um, he's very purposeful in his judgments. He's very purposeful in, in ensuring that his own are marked out for him. And so we uh, we saw that last week, and as we now get here to this interlude, what do we expect to see? Well, if uh, if this idea is right that we're looking at the the same thing happening from different ca- camera angles, what we would hope to see is a reminder for us both that God's plan is in place and that He is sovereign over us and everything but that he has marked us out. So we would expect to see that. We would expect to find in the midst of all of the the trumpets and and the judgments going out and the fire and the burning and the smoke and the smoldering and the you know all of these things that we saw last week. We would expect for there to be a, a note of hope for God's people. And sure enough, I think that's what we find when we get here. Um and and again, uh no apologies, I, I didn't write it, but it's somewhat challenging to work your way through chapter 10 and chapter 11. And so we're looking for the main, all right, what is what seems to be the main substance here? And I'm going to just break it down into two parts. The first is, I want you to notice the angel that brings the scroll. He's the dominating feature of chapter 10. It's this angel, and you, and, and you get some of this language at the beginning, right? The mighty angel coming down from heaven. He's robed in a cloud. Uh, there's a rainbow a, a, above his head. His face is like the sun. His legs are fiery pillars. Um, he's holding the little scroll, which lay open in his hand. Um, he gives a loud shout like the roar of a lion. Now, um, <clears throat> You've heard that, you've heard that, uh, surely that story. I always tell it wrong. So I'll try to tell it right. About the pastor who's given the children's sermon. And so he's got all those little kids down there around him. And, and so he's, okay, kids, I want you to tell me, uh, you know, I want you to just, you know, tell me what animal I'm describing. So it's little, little furry animal. It, it lives in trees. It has a long bushy tail. It likes to eat nuts. And then little Johnny says, it sounds a lot like a squirrel, but I know it's got to be Jesus. Um, right? So we come to this passage, and it sounds a lot like who? Jesus, right? It sounds a lot like Jesus. And when you hear the description of, right, this angel that is coming down, you're, you're simultaneously going, okay, in other places in scripture, right, we see the, 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 what we call the pre-incarnate Christ, right? He comes as a messenger of God. That's in the Old Testament. Once we get to the New Testament, Christ has assumed flesh. So he has taken on the form of a man, and what we know from Scripture is that he keeps that. Um, he is in heaven as a man, okay? So uh, don't spiritualize him. So here we are. It looks a lot like Jesus. We might think the right answer is Jesus, but the text tells us clearly it's an angel, it's a messenger of God, and 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 we don't get messengers and angels in the book of Revelation, you know, 
as Jesus. So even though it looks like it, and we almost always want to go, that sounds a lot like Jesus, that's Jesus, that's Jesus. Um, what we're going to say here is, that's no, probably an angel. It's a, it's a messenger. However, he is coming from the throne of God. So he is speaking for God. He is speaking for the Lamb who is at the center of it all. And so that's probably why he bears all of these these. Uh, emblematic parts, right? The, the rainbow. He, he, he is the, he is the covenant God. Um, he is the one that holds all of those promises together. He is, he has the, the fiery pillar of lay. I mean, he is the strong. He roars like a lion, but he's, but he's a lamb that was slain. And so these are parts that have already been present in the book. And so the angel comes, um, and the other part here that would, you know, kind of have you off balances a little bit is that what does he have in his hand? He, he has the scroll, right? And so remember from Revelation 4 and 5, the scroll that couldn't be opened um, because there was no one worthy, the lamb is found and he is worthy. And so John rejoices that the lamb was found. Well, all of the seals have been broken it, the, the scroll presumably has now been opened, and we see it in the hand of this messenger, and it comes and it's opened. God's plan has, uh, is, if you will, turned loose. And it was turned loose by the second person of the Trinity, the Son, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. So he comes, he's bearing that. Um, and that scroll is actually what, what captures our attention here in the passage. Because that scroll, right, um, is God's plan. And John is going to be told, he's told to take it and to eat it, to consume it. We're assuming, really, that that scroll is the scroll of Revelation 5. Uh, again, this is one of those detail things. Why is it called the little scroll? Well, um, the, the little book, you go and, you know, read everybody on there. There's, you know, a million different people have written on the idea of why is it referred to here as the little scroll. And um, we don't have time to go into all that. But it appears that it is the scroll that was open, written on both sides, God's complete plan, his plan for his kingdom here on earth. And so, um, and so the angel is bringing that. Now, I want you to notice, right, that there, there are some... There are some features about this angel that are described for us, and these are helpful. Remember, everything, you know, um, there's meaning attached to this. And so John sees the angel. He comes down. He plants his foot, one foot on dry land, the other foot on the sea. And, um, And he's strong, right? He has legs like fiery pillars. And so... Here is the, the messenger of God representing the second person of the Trinity. And what, it, what he is saying in that action of he establishes himself both on dry land and on the sea is, I am Lord over all creation. It's mine. It's mine. Now, what is maybe a little more striking about that, uh, more forceful, is we just think, okay, land, sea. Oh, he's sovereign over the land. He's sovereign over the sea. But there's so much wrapped up in those two items. And, and one of the items there is the sea itself. Because in the book of Revelation, indeed, all really all the way through the Bible, uh, the seas 
um, are the dwelling place of, of the evil one. And so in Revelation 13, just a couple of chapters later, Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, Marion, I'll be gone next Sunday. Marion gets to preach that passage, which is really, right, Revelation 12 and 13, it's the sweet spot. I mean, and he hasn't even thanked me yet for giving him that. Um, but Revelation 13:1, just so I can kind of jump the gun on him, is the beast coming up out of where? The, the sea. And so here we get this, we get this image before all of that, right? Where we get to see the opposition in Revelation 12, 13. We get a picture of that opposition. What do we see here? We see Jesus, Jesus' angel, the messenger of God, with his legs, his feet firmly planted on that sea. What are you saying? Mine. I own it. I control it. This is all my domain. Anything that happens from here on out, anything that comes out of that sea, by my sovereignty, under my control, nothing happens apart from Him. And so just that image alone, right, is intended to say, look, everything that has happened here and is happening is happening underneath the dominion of that Creator. You know, the book of Colossians tells us that Jesus is the agent of creation. Nothing was created that didn't come through Him. And so here He is proclaiming that everything there is His, under His control. And then we get the image of John. He's, he's told that He's going to... He should eat the scroll and it'll be sweet and then it'll turn his stomach sour. Now, what do you do with that picture? And, you know, in one sense, it sounds complicated. In another sense, it really doesn't. Have you ever eaten a meal that tasted amazing, but then at three o'clock in the morning didn't taste so good? I have this experience quite regularly with jalapeno popcorn. It's wonderful in the evening, not so much about 4 o'clock in the morning, right? Terrible heartburn, the turmoil in my gut. Okay, so think about the imagery. He's eating the scroll. The plan of God is coming to him. So is God's word sweet? Absolutely. Does it have things in it that are simultaneously Difficult and challenging? You better believe it. And, and especially when we're talking, if, if we're right and we're talking about the God's plan for establishing His kingdom, which encompasses all of these, um, bowls that are poured out and seals that are broken and trumpets that are blasting. If all of those things are happening and all of these judgments are wrapped up in that and there is judgment, for those who have lived in the world and and have not yielded to Christ, if, if that is taking place simultaneously, the same time that those who are marked out on our Christs, if all of that's going on, there's both a sweetness in God's plan and there's a difficulty in God's plan. And and you would know this, you would understand this, if in your family perhaps there's someone who doesn't know Christ. And maybe there's someone that does, right? 
And so you know the sweetness of, of that joy, but then you also know the desperate nature, the, the struggle in your heart, right? The pain that exists there. If there is someone you know, they don't know Christ. And you know what that means. And so those two together come together simultaneously making both the eating of the scroll sweet, but then souring John's stomach. And, and obviously this is an image of his receiving, right, that divine plan of God. Because, And it's, it's also happening right nearly in the middle of the book. And so it's kind of a, uh, a reignition, if you will, of John's prophetic calling, that he's getting that message again, that he is now going to speak as he makes his way through the rest of this book and um, the rest of this letter. But there's something other, there's a foundational element, I think, here that all of us could and should consider. And, and, and as we think about the fact that the scroll contains God's plan for his kingdom. It's at the same time sweet and difficult, right? Think practically about your life. As, as you make your way through life, as we live, right? There is a, there is a, I don't know, a sweet maturity in the life of the believer who is simultaneously able to accept those good things that are happening in their lives that they call blessings. And then the things that are happening in their lives that don't look so much like blessings are really difficult, but at the same time they're able to look at those and say, even that is good for me. That is the really challenging part of life in Christ, right? To be to that maturity point where we're... where. You know, when things are going well, we're saying, Lord, thank you, bless you for what you're doing in my life. When things are really crummy, we're able to say, Lord, thank you for what you're doing in my life. Right? That's not a place easily obtained. I'm, I'm going to give a, a little plug. So we're going to be doing a Sunday school class through the summer, begins in June. And it's from a series of, series of books that John Piper did. And it, it's going to be a really neat class. It's going to be a lot of fun. But it's going to be, we're going to have different presenters each week. Someone new will be presenting in that class. And they're going to be presenting biographical sketches from church history. Uh, the series that, of books that John Piper wrote was a, a series, the title overarching of all the books is The Swans Are Not Silent. And so it's these little vignettes from people's lives down through the ages. But almost all of them were able to look at the hardship in their lives and, and, and to affirm it as good, even though it looked really bad. That's the maturity we want to drive for. That's the maturity of, of digesting God's plan and it being simultaneously sweet in the mouth and sour in the stomach. It's, it's the theology of Job 2, where Job had a really bad day. Beginning in verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he, that is Job, is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery, and he scraped himself with it as he sat amongst the ashes. And his wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. 
And Job replied, you're talking, sorry, this is Mother's Day, it's not a good passage. Job said, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And then the passage says, in all of this, Job did not sin. That's the sweet maturity of the believer who is able to see God's hand at work no matter what it is. Major successes on one hand, uh, stunning failures on the other hand, and yet God is sovereign over it all. And God's plan is all of that, right? It's, It's a gigantic box of chocolates in some sense in your life. But it's all good. Here's the second thing, the measuring of the temple and the worshipers there at the beginning of chapter 11. And and what I'm going to do here to save a little time is um, I'm going to read a quote from Dr. Johnson on this section. And um, it's a small quote, but I think it will help us. He says, in the two scenes of Revelation 11, John is giving a measuring rod and he's commanded to measure the temple Then he hears a heavenly voice narrating the prophetic career and resurrection of those whom the voice calls my two witnesses. The second corresponds to the visions of the 144,000 and the international multitude of Revelation 7 and its placement theme and twofold structure. The vision of Revelation 11, however, nuanced their portrait of God's protective care with greater complexity. The measure of the sanctuary and the invincibility of the two witnesses until their testifying task is done reaffirm the promise of Revelation 7. God will let nothing separate his people from his love. However, the prohibition against measuring the outer court, leaving it vulnerable to trampling by the Gentiles and the beasts, slaughter of the witness, show that God promises not to spare us from all suffering but to secure our faith fast amid suffering. So here's what Dr. Johnson's saying. So we have the picture at the beginning, and and it's John is asked to measure the temple, the courtyard, and its witnesses, okay? Um, Go measure the temple and the altar and its worshipers, but exclude, he says, the outer court. And Dr. Johnson says, right, there's this semblance because that temple is the place, right? It, it is the, the residence, if you will, of God's people. And so what see, he seems to be saying is measure this portion of the temple. And so he's showing the safety and security of the believer. But at the same time, he's showing that there is a part of this that's left and it's susceptible to the sacking, the, 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 the trampling that is going to take place. And Dr. Johnson says of that, right? That God promises not to spare us from all suffering, but to secure our faith fast amid suffering. Might we suffer for our faith? Well, Jesus says absolutely. And it seems that all of the apostles did. And, uh, and so it would make sense, yes, that, that that is potentially our lot as believers. But the bigger question is, Will that suffering separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? 
And the answer is no. And that's the answer that Paul gives us in Romans 8. He says that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then he goes through a whole slew of stuff. So let me ask them, how important is it to have this heavenly mindset over against the humanistic mindset, which is this is all we have? Critical. Massively important as we work our way through life, right? To have a mindset that says this isn't the end, okay? This is part of, of a much longer game. So when I was a kid, and this analogy breaks down, but try to stay with me. So when I was a kid and I played Little League Baseball, the, my best years, my best years were in, uh, San Bernardino, California. And, we had a great little little league field. It was right near the school, not far from our house, and um, and that's where I played my best ball. All right, but I remember. So there, there were, back in those days, I've seen it done differently, as I've been a parent. But back then, you would play your game, and when you were done playing your game, your coach rallied you up, and then you went to the snack bar, and you got your. Your goodie. Now, the, the way that we do it is the parents like bring stuff and it's like an apple and a banana and a, you know, a diet juice box, okay? But back then, we were able to go to the window in the good old days. We went to the window and there was the rack of candy and you got to choose. And I always got the fun dip because it had those three pouches and the little stick. Tons more sugar in the fun dip than anything else on the shelf, right? But so you here's but here's the the idea, right? That happened at the end of each game. And I tell you there were probably games where I didn't think a thing about what happened at the end of the season. But back then, we kept up. I had a teacher in fact who kept all the little boys, we had these little baseballs, he had these little baseballs, Mr. Robinson on the board. He kept the score from every single game and which kids' teams were winning and which were losing, right? And, and at the end of the season, we had a big rally day and they gave trophies to the first, second, and third place teams. And that was it. And if you weren't first, second, or third, you didn't get I know, you didn't get a trophy. That just breaks some hearts in here, but it's just the way it was. But look, there were games, I have no doubt, there were games where all I could see, all I could think about was the fun dip at the end. You see what I'm saying? I lost sight of the, I lost sight of the bigger picture. And the bigger picture was the end of the year ceremony when, when it all really happened. The fun dip occupied me. And, and here's what I'm saying, right? There's a tendency for us to see the, the end is the fun dip. It's life. It's this. This is all there is. This is all we know. That's the humanistic worldview, right? We're all just a big, massive, cellular, whatever, biology, and that it really doesn't mean anything in the end. And this is, we're living for the here and now. And, and what I'm saying is, and I think what John is saying to us is, no, there's a much bigger picture. Uh, there, There is an end game here, and that end game is a new heavens and a new earth on which the Lamb of God rules and reigns. Are you pressing in for the long game? Are you, are you in it 
for that because that is the hope that he is giving us here. Listen, this hope is really meaningless for you if this is all there is. If it's the fun dip at the end, okay, then what John is saying to us, what the angel is saying, is it doesn't make any difference if he's sovereign over the beast that comes out of the sea and if he is sovereign over um, the suffering that is going to happen in your life because all you care about is the fun dip. But what, but what John is saying is, no, there's more. There is more yet to come. And, and there may be suffering and there may be hardship and there may be heartache that he redeems in the end and it's for his glory. Remember the saints who are crying out, the, the martyrs who are crying out under the altar and God is hearing their prayers. See, there's more to come. And, and John is, John wants to steal us for that because that that seventh trumpet is going to blast. That next woe is going to come. And, and, and with increasing vigor, uh, those judgments, uh, remember, mess up and mingle um, everything. We, we, we likened it to, to the Allies landing in Normandy and disrupting the relative peace and security of France, right? Um, even though they were ruled by the enemy, they had, they, life was kind of going on, but now the allies land and it completely disrupts everything and life is completely thrown into chaos. And so we're saying, yes, that chaos can and does and will be a part of life, um, as the Lord is carrying out his purposes. But knowing the end game, the sovereignty of God over it all is, is where chapter 10 and chapter 11 are going and I realize that's somewhat of a the fun dip is a poor analogy, but I hope for you it just gives you that sense that beyond today, beyond tomorrow, beyond the next week, God intends greater things for His people than here and now. And to show us that, to remind us of that, to give us that hope, right? He. He gives us, the Lord gave us his supper. Because in the supper, he says, listen, I loved you enough to carry you to the end to die for you. I loved you enough to come down to offer myself for you, to offer my life, to go through death, so that in the end, you would be mine. And then he said to his disciples, he says to us, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. As you celebrate my goodness, my love, my mercy, my grace, my keeping of you, do it in remembrance of me. And so we have the meal that's set for us this morning. And as we come to it, I, I want to encourage you, right? If you're, uh, if you're, if you've been baptized, you're a member of a, of a church in good standing, the supper is for you, right? It's not my, it's not my supper. It's not the elder's supper. It's not the Presbyterian church's supper. It's the Lord's supper. And it is for those who have trusted in Christ, who have affirmed uh, with the sign of baptism that they belong to the Lord, the supper's for you. If you haven't, my encouragement would be to let the supper pass you by and, uh, and to take a few minutes and reflect on the Lord's calling. And then let's visit and, um, and let's, uh, let's get to that place. Um, and as we think about that, just think about um, the admonition that the Apostle Paul gives us when he says in 1 Corinthians 11, Whoever eats the bread of the cup or drinks 
the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And a man should examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. So here's encouragement. You're here this morning. You're trusting Christ. As I say, right, you're in the battle. You're fighting the fight, the good fight of the faith. The supper's for you. Um, you're here this morning and you're not trusting Christ. Um, it's really kind of a family meal. And my encouragement to you would be to take a minute to reflect upon all that Christ says to us in this supper. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the supper that's before us, for your goodness. Thank you for the word which has already spoken to us and reminds us of life that we have in Christ. And Father, now we pray that you would uh, take the bread and the juice, both of which remain so, and you would strengthen us by it um, as they unite with our faith. We pray it all in Jesus' name.